Good morning, everybody. I have retitled my message this morning, and I'm calling it The Slippery Slope of Compromise. The Slippery Slope of Compromise. As you know, we are going through the seven churches, and my focus is really on the heart condition of each church. And we saw that when Jesus is addressing each church, he commends them, then he expresses some concern that he notices in the church, and then he speaks of correction. Why is he doing that? Because he's calling them lampstands. Each of the churches were lampstands in their city. They were the testimony. They were reflecting Christ in the city. And so the importance of that testimony was where Christ was trying to address. That they would be a good testimony, a good reflection of who Christ is. Right, today we are looking at the church in Pergamum. That's the third church that Jesus was addressing. The church in the city of Pergamum. Let me just uh, first read the passage of scripture and then talk a little bit more. Write this letter, that's Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 to 17. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let me say a few words about the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was a city of academia, uh, famous for its library. It had over 200,000 parchments, 200,000 books really in that city library. Now, if our city library had something like that, I'd be living there. As long as there's a cafe next door, I'm done, right? But Pergamon was also the city where parchment was invented. For the first time, they began to use material, writing on material that was made of animal skin. So thinking was important for them. Ideas were important. Recording these ideas were important to them. So engaging intellectual conversations was important to them. But also, this city was able to accommodate the needs of the Roman Empire as well as the needs of the people in their city. And so they had a temple for the emperor so that they would worship the emperor and thereby fulfill the need to be loyal to the Roman Empire. But also, they had temples all around of the common gods or the gods that most people would follow. They had these temples erected for these worshippers as well. 
So what happened is Pergamum was the city of compromise. They knew how to be inclusive. They knew how to compromise. They knew how to please the powers that be, but they also knew how to please the people in the city. So this church in Pergamum was living in an environment where compromise was what was required in the city. So living in that city that had mastered the art of compromise, the church, of course, had to stand true to what they believed in, and compromise was not an option for them. And so Jesus commends them first in verse thirteen: "I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith." Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So you look at the two phrases there: Satan's throne, where Satan dwells. And so you see that in that city, behind the human elements of that city, was this demonic stronghold of Satan, where there was the demonic authority and demonic presence. Satan's throne, Satan's dwelling place. And so, in the midst of that, the church stood firm. And Jesus says, "You held fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith." So I put it here this way: in the midst of the political and societal pressure to succumb to compromise, the church held on to Christ's name, which is the character of Christ, and Christ's faith, which is the ways of Christ. And so their testimony, they strongly held to represent Christ according to who He is, and to represent Christ according to living the way He did. And so that was the commendation for this church. But there was a concern, and Jesus highlights that concern. And the concern was this: You tolerate stumbling blocks. Verse fourteen to fifteen. I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you have also those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You'll see in the King James, he talks about you have put a stumbling block, stumbling block. Now, the Greek word stumbling block is the word skandolon, and it literally means. The movable stick or trigger in a trap. When you set a trap, there's a little piece, element there where you put the bait in, and then when whatever you're trying to trap, if you're trapping a mouse, the mouse is attracted to the bait. The mouse forgets about the trap. He doesn't know what's going on here, but he is just focused on the bait. And when the moment the mouse eats the bait, the trap is triggered. And so that. Element there, that little trigger there is the Greek word skandolon, and so metaphorically, it's any impediment placed in the way and causing one to stumble or fall. What Jesus was noticing in that church, in the midst of the compromise, it had produced a heart condition that was causing a stumbling block to themselves and to people around them. They were tolerating. The stumbling blocks. So I put it this way: This is the slippery slope of compromise. Compromise produces two-faced 
stumbling block. Compromise produces a two-faced stumbling block. And Jesus separates the two, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitan. I want to talk to you a little bit about these two things. The first one, the doctrine of Balaam, one of the first stumbling blocks is this embracing of this idea and teaching and understanding that Jesus called the doctrine of Balaam. I put there the doctrine of Balaam, sin a la carte. Sin a la carte. You go into a very fine dining restaurant, you see the menu and you choose what you want. And I think sometimes as a Christian, we present ourselves, especially on a Sunday morning, we present ourselves really well. This is not how I wake up. Not nearly, but we present ourselves on our Sunday best. And then we choose the menu. We choose what we want to follow in scriptures. We choose, this, this is something easier to follow, I'll choose this. This is something I don't really like, I will choose. You know, so we, we treat the Bible like a menu. So I call it the sin a la carte. It is the gap between the public and the private life. We are selective in our hearing and obeying God. To understand this, we need to look at the story of Balaam. We don't have the time to look at the entire story. It's in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. So we don't really have time to look at these three chapters. But the gist of the story is King Balak was facing the Israelites. And he knew that the favor of God was upon this nation and that every single enemy that went against them was defeated. And so he goes to Balaam. Balaam was this famous man. He wasn't a follower of God. He wasn't a follower of Jehovah. But he had this ability through sorcery, but also to, from hearing God, he was able to speak. And when he spoke, curses, curses would happen. When he spoke blessings, blessings would happen. But he was tapping on sorcery, but also tapping on hearing God. And so it's really the symbol of compromise. So this is what happened. Balak goes to him and says to Balaam, look, I will give you wealth and fame, anything you want. Just go and curse this nation Israel. Because once you curse them and God is no longer blessing them, we'll be able to attack them. So Balaam talks to God, but God speaks to him and says, do not curse this nation for I have blessed this nation. And so this is the public life of Balaam. Numbers 22:38. he says this, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. That sounds like a really good godly man. Chapter 23, verse 26, did I not tell you all that the Lord speaks, that I must do? Numbers 24, 13, he says to Balak again, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. So if you look at him face value, this man looks and sounds like one who is obeying the word of God. He is a follower of God. He preaches the word of God. I mean, he is so good, we might keep him as our pastor. But there's a problem with this man. Underlying in, behind this facade of wanting to do God's will, was really the struggle, the temptation he was going through for wealth that was offered to him and the fame that was offered to him. And Moses 
in his later years exposes that and tells the people of Israel this in Numbers 31 verse 16. Speaking of Balaam, he says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. So really, his public presentation, he said, I will only speak what God tells me to speak. His public presentation was, I will only do what God tells me to do. But privately, he counseled Balak and the people. I know how to make them fall, entice them, trip them up. Because they've got this appetite, cravings for food and for sex. Entice them and you will make them fall. So publicly, I will only do what God tells me to do. Publicly, I will only speak what God tells me to speak. Privately, the mess and chaos of a man who was longing for fame and fortune. Compromise. The gap, the stumbling block was this. The gap between the talk and the walk. The gap between the talk and the walk. Few people have asked me through the years why I don't preach hard on sin. They say, why don't you preach on sin? I've never heard you preach a good, solid sermon against sin. My answer to them is this. My colleagues through the years who I have learned from, who I've studied, who I've heard, who encouraged me, some of them preached strongly about sin. They strongly preached against sin. And yet, later in life, we see that the very things they were preaching against were the very things they were struggling privately in their own lives. So I say to myself, and I say to anyone who asks me why I don't speak on sin, I'll say, this is what I want to do. I want to let the word of God transform my life so that people will see me and my life will preach a stronger message against sin than my words do. May I live a life where I'm attractive to the world because of what God has done in my life. There was a gap between the talk and the walk in the church in Pergamon. Jesus was very strong against this, especially when he spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23. If you read the chapter Matthew 23, it's a hard, hard, scathing word against those who preach and teach and speak about God. Matthew 23, 3-4. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. He's speaking about the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, they were teaching, obey God, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, publicly speaking, as if this is the oracles of God. Privately, they couldn't be bothered about the lives they were struggling with sin. He's scathing with them as you look at some of these scriptures in chapter 23 of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Stumbling block. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Thank God you don't have a preacher like that in your church. Verse 25 of chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You can see why he's angry. He's angry because their lifestyle, they talk a good talk, but their walk was separate from the talk. There was a gap between the talk and the walk. And whenever there's a gap between the talk and the walk, your testimony is diluted. You become a stumbling block. You become a trip hazard when you preach, when you talk about God. Our testimony becomes a stumbling block when we talk the talk and do not walk the talk. And that was the doctrine of Balaam. Then Jesus also talked about a similar stumbling block, but expressed differently. And that was the doctrine of Nicolaitans. I call this the sin buffet. They look at it and say, ah, let's just eat. <laughs> let's just sin. Don't worry about it. The casual nature of the way they treated sin. It's all in the appetite. I know a little bit about appetite. I've got a PhD in appetite. This is the problem with my appetite. I do not like the things that are good for me. I love the things that are bad for me. I love KFC. <laughs> I eat it. And then after I finish, I regret. And I hate it. I say, I'm never going to eat it again. One month later, shall we have KFC? I love fried stuff. I love desserts. I love everything that clogs up my artery. I need to change my appetite. But more important than that is this indulgence in the things of the world. That doesn't just clog up my artery, it clogs up my soul. The doctrine of Nicolaitans really said this, let's just indulge in fleshly desires under the banner of spiritual liberty. They're saying, hey, look, Jesus will forgive us of all our sins. Don't worry about it. Let's just do whatever we need to do and get forgiveness. Now, let me say this. The doctrine of grace is the most important doctrine that you can ever understand. The doctrine of grace says this. God's forgiveness is unlimited. The doctrine of grace says Christ has fulfilled everything that needs to be fulfilled for you to receive total forgiveness. It is the most important doctrine for a person with intentions to transform his life. Because with the doctrine of grace, I can repeatedly come to Christ as many times as I fall, I stand up and I say, God, help me. And I put myself under the grace of God. And that grace will transform my life. Because I cannot do it on my own. I cannot change my life. But in Christ, under his grace, he transforms me. 
So this doctrine of grace is so crucial if you want to see change happening in your life. But it's also a dangerous thing in the hands of someone who enjoys and has an appetite for sin. Because it gives that person a false sense of security that everything's going to be all right. I can keep on sinning and Jesus will forgive me. The problem with that is the person who's indulging in sin doesn't realize the wages of sin is death. Every time I touch sin, every time I'm indulging in sin, it's clogging up my soul. It's like gangrene eating away and causing death in my very being. Romans 6, 22 to 23. Now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, and that's the word charis, the word grace, but the grace, the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So as long as I begin to let God change my appetite, and I have the appetite for the grace of God, and I feed on the grace of God, and I allow God to transform me, I will enjoy everlasting life here on earth as it is in heaven. But if I allow myself this idea that I can keep on feeding and feeding on this appetite of the world, I will be feeding on the wages of sin, which is death. James puts it this way. James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and he's enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. James is saying, look at your inner life. Look at what you're craving for. If you are craving for things of the world, if you keep on craving and feeding on the sin elements of this world, what is happening is, as you keep on feeding, that desire, if you don't deal with the desire, that desire will cause you to act on that desire. And if you don't deal with the actions of that desire, it will give birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, when you keep on doing what you're doing, when it's fully grown, it will lead to death. Hey, I do preach against sin. But I'm preaching it to myself. I'm saying to myself, if I don't watch these cravings, just as the doctor tells me to watch my cravings for this junk of this food junk. I'm a food junkie. But let's not be a world junkie where we feed and feed on the things of the world that clogs up our soul. Our testimony becomes a stumbling block when our talk and our walk is no different from those in the world. Can I say that again? Our testimony becomes a stumbling block when our walk and our talk is no different from the people in the world. If they can't see a difference in our lives, what's the point of following Jesus? It becomes a stumbling block to them. 
this two-faced stumbling block that caused the slippery slope of compromise. One, where there's a gap between our talk and our walk. Secondly, when there's no difference between our lifestyle and the lifestyle in this world. This is the correction, and I close with this. Jesus says to them, repent. Change the way you think. Change the way you live. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The correction is this. Use God's word as a surgical tool to correct what's going on in your inner life. I put here, the subtle effect of compromise is mixture and dilution of our testimony. The only thing that can separate that mixture is the word of God. Jesus reveals himself to the church in Pergamum as this. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of that phrase two-edged sword? Double-edged sword. It's the word of God. And so you see in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Hebrews author is saying, use God's word as a surgical tool. Because God's word can separate that mixture. God's word. You may think that you're living your life well. You may think that everything's okay on the outside. But check the inside. Let the word of God come. And like a master surgeon, let him dissect what's going on in your inner thoughts and your inner beings. Let the word of God do that in your life. Paul puts it this way. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is the scripture for? For correction, for fine-tuning, for adjustments, so that the inner life is aligned with our outer life, so that our walk and our talk is in alignment. Compromise is a slippery slope. It places a stumbling block, a spiritual trip hazard for us as well as for those around us. How do we overcome the temptation to compromise? Allow God's word to be a surgical tool that discerns the thoughts and intentions and brings about correction and completeness in our Christian walk. Don't just read the word. Live the word. Apply it. Put into practice. That will bring the correction that's needed. When you use God's word that way, God's word will bridge the gap between our walk and our talk. If you use God's word that way, God's word will change our appetite and cravings for the junk of this world to a balanced diet of true spiritual liberty.